37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 73. Who would have thought we got this far? Uh, who would have thought we uh, would have recorded something on time? Because yeah. apparently we forgot to record last week. Yeah, you picked somebody else up in your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shit. And we drove to fucking Kentucky. The uh, uh, paranormal Cadillac is almost full this episode. And very uh, very empty this time around because it's just you and I. Uh, Steven had some stuff to tend to. He uh, He's taking, uh, taking some work stuff uh, this week that he had to go do, so... But never fear, because Sean and Presto are here, and uh, I think to make up for our little kerfuffle, we're going to drop three episodes this month. Uh, this episode and two more before the end of the month. Happy so, early fucking Christmas, listener. Yeah, we'll drop uh, we'll drop some extra stuff. We'll uh, we'll have an episode um, in one week from this one and the following week from that one. I almost choked on. My water. And you don't even have to donate to our Patreon to get all this. We're just doing That's it for right. You. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we do have a Patreon. In fact, it's, it's not like all these other annoying Patreons. We, we don't uh, – Pixelated Paranormal does not have one. Pixelated Sausage, which is our network, uh, it does have one. And we will mention a little bit about that at the end. But uh, please don't roll your eyes and don't turn us off. There's no levels of, ooh, give us $5 a month and get this bonus content because, as you can see last week, we can barely get enough regular content. (laughs) If you donate $10, you'll be on our special listener uh, list and you'll get uh, cooking and art with Preston. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, we won't uh, won't ever do that. We will never have like a special group or a special – subscription or anything like that this is just uh you know if you want to we'll list it at the end and if you don't want to you're still amazing you're still awesome and we still love you all of you except for the racists if you're still listening maybe not listen ever anymore (laughs) but yeah uh, yeah we went to kentucky uh a couple weeks ago and we raised about 1500 bucks for children's miracle network yeah came back forgot to record and so here we are and we're taking a little more of a break from the cryptid encounters, and we're going to do a bit more of a scientific episode this time around. Mother Nature and all for weird shit. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, we're going to talk about some cool stuff that uh, we've been kind of collecting here and there, and it finally all correlated into one cohesive uh, episode. So we're going to do that, and that'll be a lot of fun. And then next week, we'll pick Steven back up, and we'll get right back into some uh, some more strange creatures. But um, Presto, do you want to start off with the news? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not too often, actually, that uh, Park City, where I live, comes up in the news. And uh, they actually uh, came up in MUFON news because Sunday, October the 28th, 2018, it was reported that a cigar-like object was seen in the sky for a duration of two minutes. No shit. Yeah, no shit. One eyewitness reported, while adjusting an outside TV antenna from the ground, I looked up and I seen, actual what he wrote, I seen... 
not mm-hmm. I saw, the shiny object moving from east to west straight up, parentheses, 90 degrees. At first, I thought it was an airplane or maybe Superman, but then I realized it had no wings and it was leaving no contrail. By the time I was able to get my phone out and take a picture, it had traveled west and out of sight. It appeared to be high in the atmosphere, high enough to be reflecting the sun. It may have been a spacecraft or ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hey, they're covering all the bases, I suppose. Yeah. So that's weird because, like, uh, you know, I've never seen a fucking UFO while being in Park City. And I'm a little depressed, too, because... Um, you know, they say that uh, people who smoke uh, tend to see UFOs more than non-smokers. Because they're stoned? No, because, you know, we have to, like, go outside to get our nicotine fix, right? And Because you can't smoke right. in buildings anymore. So I figured, like, all the times, mm-hmm. like, I'm outside, like, smoking my pipe or at Lodge, I'm outside, you know, getting that hit of nicotine, that I would look up into the nighttime sky and be like, holy fuck, there's a UFO. But sadly, I've not seen Dick, so... I don't know. <laughs> There's a joke to be made there, but it's too easy. Oh. Um, <clears throat> so I wonder with all the vaping now, if UFO sightings are going to be cut down considerably since a lot of people can vape indoors. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> food for thought. Food for thought. <sighs> well, speaking of food, man, um, first of all, that's really strange. I didn't – that's crazy that actual, you know, Park City. Yeah. Little little suburb of Wichita uh, made it into the news, the MUFON news. So, hell yeah, dude. Keep your eyes peeled. But speaking of food, Presto, what is the weirdest thing you have ever eaten on purpose? Um, well, I've eaten goat brain before. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, out of a little uh, – there's a, a lady here in Wichita – a nice old Mexican lady that lives in a trailer park and that serves Mexican food, like authentic Mexican food out mm-hmm. of her trailer in like little styrofoam containers. Like, you know, you just go up and, you know, put money in the window and out comes this, you know, kind of styrofoam container thing. And uh-huh. uh, if I remember correct, correctly, it's babacua, which is like fried goat brain with like eggs. It's like a breakfast dish. And, uh, I didn't know it was goat brain at the time. It wasn't until after I eaten the whole damn thing that was, somebody was like, "Yeah, buddy, you're eating goat brain." So, <laughs> and they also said, "And that's not a trailer; it's called a food truck." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hell yeah, man! Yeah, I think uh, I think I'd try. I would try brain sometime. Yeah, yeah. And I ate. So did you like it? Was it tasty? Yeah, it was good. And then uh, sea urchin. I've eaten sea urchin, which to me is not really. I mean, if you're going to eat sushi, sushi and fish, like that's one of those things that really to me is not weird. But some yeah. people would might classify that as a weird food. So, hell yeah. Well, have you ever grabbed a bug off the ground and just chomped on it for no reason? Hell fucking no. <laughs> right, me neither. Um, one of my best friends, uh, Devin, he actually one time when we were hanging out at uh, Shayla's house back when we were dating, um, we were in the backyard hanging out with her and her parents, and it was in the middle of the summer, so there's a bunch of lightning bugs, and Devin grabbed a couple of them and tossed them into his mouth and waited for them to flash and then bit down on them, and the uh, the chemical that lights up their butts uh, lit up his entire mouth like he had just like eaten a glow stick. Huh. 
<laughs> right. I don't know what to say to that. That's... <laughs> <laughs> you had to be there. But even when he did it, as hilarious as it was, um, I always wondered, like, what kind of bacteria and weird shit is growing on bugs? And if you just toss one in your mouth, like, what kind of shit will you get from it? Yeah. And, you know, you can you can grab worms. People do fried earthworms and, and all that kind of stuff all the time. But the we, had a, cr- we had a fried crickets that one time. Remember we went to, to – uh, uh, exploration place uh, for that, yeah. uh, and that lady had like the 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 fried crickets that tasted like nachos and like jalapenos and things like that. Yes, yeah, yeah, they did that, and I think the next year they had mealworms that they did the same thing, like ranch and barbecue mealworms. But but see, all that stuff is cooked, and in the act of cooking, it usually kind of uh, sterilizes and kills off a lot of bacterium and everything, but. Um, I'm going to give you guys a quick story on why you shouldn't to just pick up the first creepy crawly that crawls across your table. And uh, here's why. A man who ate a garden slug eight years ago Ugh. dies from rat lung disease. From who what? Rat lung disease. Jesus, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> right, not at all. So this was back on the 5th of November. A man in Australia has died from rat lung caused by a garden slug he ate on a dare eight years ago. Sam Ballard, who was a promising rugby player, died at the age of 27 years old after developing a series of complications from the disease. Ballard was 19 years old in 2010 when he and some friends were drinking wine in the garden. And a quote here says, we were just sitting over here having a bit of red wine, appreciating the night, and trying to act like grown-ups. And a slug came crawling across here, his friend Jimmy Galvin told the news. The conversation came up, you know, should I eat it? And off he went. Sam popped it in his mouth. Bang. That's how it happened. So over the following days, Sam Ballard's legs began to hurt, and he worried the slug could be the cause. After visiting a doctor, he was told he had rat lungworm, or a word I'm going to butcher, angiostrongyolysis. This is a disease that affects the brain and spinal cord. It is caused by roundworm parasites that, in adult form, is normally only found in rodents. However, an infected rodent can pass the larvae through feces, which is then picked up from slugs and snails, sometimes becoming infected as they pass over and potentially eat the larvae. According to the CDC, most cases of rat lungworm resolve over time without a need for treatment. However, in some cases, serious complications can arise, leading to brain damage and death. In Ballard's case, he contracted this meningitis, um, basically meningitis, from the rat lungworm. He fell into a coma that lasted over a year. When he woke up, unfortunately, doctors discovered over that amount of time he suffered from brain damage. And, I mean, his friends and his family did uh, what they could. And they, you know, comforted him and came around and and spent time with him. But, unfortunately, um, there was a benefit he was receiving for disability, and it had ran out. Um, The government pulled the funding after a bunch of campaigning. They got the funding back. But unfortunately, irregardless of the treatment and the funding, unfortunately, he did succumb to the uh, complications of rat lung disease and passed away. And cases of rat lung worm have become fatal 
Sorry, cases of rat lungworm that become fatal are very rare. In the U.S., the disease is almost only found in Hawaii. A few cases reported in the continental states, however, primarily in Hawaii. Um, but in New Orleans back in 1993, a boy got infected after eating a snail as a dare. People quit eating invertebrates. <laughs> quit popping them in your mouth because someone thinks it'll be funny. Um, he got infected after eating a snail. Um, he got uh, a few weeks later, got symptoms of muscle aches, stiff neck, vomiting, headaches, and a slight fever. But after two weeks, his symptoms went away without even having any treatment. And as a precautionary, guys, the CDC advises not to eat raw or undercooked slugs, snails, frogs, shrimp, or prawns. If you handle snails or slugs, wear gloves and wash your hands. Always remember to thoroughly wash produce, even or especially when traveling in areas where the parasites are common, avoid eating undercooked vegetables. Because, guys, slugs and bugs can crawl across your veggies and then you can eat that shit and if you don't wash it, you'll probably be puking it up or shitting it out as water later. No boogers. <laughs> <laughs> it's another classic case of you sitting on that soundbite for, you know, five minutes while I ramble on about a story. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. Is that like droopy? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, dude. Hell yeah. That's good stuff. So do you think his mates feel like dicks because they, like, dared him to eat the slug? Man, there's there were some excerpts here and some statements from, like, family and stuff. And the kid's mom says, like, she doesn't blame his friends because they were just, you know, acting as friends, acting as mates and just doing what, you know, fucking dipshit boys do. And yeah. I'm not speaking ill about, you know, the guy and his friends. Like, I did dumb stuff when I was growing up, too. And especially when you're with your bros and you're broing hard, like, you just do dumb stuff. You know, street cred, bragging rights. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It sucks. You got to sit there and, and think about what could have, should have been done, but that's all you can do. Yeah. So, yeah, guys, don't don't eat slugs and bugs. Wash them at least. Fry them up. Yeah. Cook them in a stew. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I mentioned earlier, um, we're going to do primarily some science stuff that is still kind of on the creepy side. Very interesting stuff. And we'll start things off talking about um, a story that Shayla gave me about a year ago that I've kind of been sitting on. And it's about a really interesting body of water that when animals swim in it, basically turns them into stone, much like Medusa. And um, I was going to ask Preston, have you heard about the petrifying lake of Tanzania? But you have because we tried to record this episode previously and it was a boring snooze fest. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Preston, have you heard about the tens of blah, 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 blah? So there's this really wicked lake with this red and orange water located in East Africa near the border of Kenya called Lake Natron. And it's been killing and petrifying birds and other animals, leaving them like morbid skeleton statues for fuck as long as I know. So Lake Natron in Tanzania gets its name due to the mixture of salt and minerals called natron that are basically revealed when the water levels decrease from naturally occurring evaporation and long periods of drought. So natron is a compound that occurs naturally in nature from volcanic ash, high levels of sodium bicarbonate, sodium carbonate, all that kind of stuff, all that sciencey stuff. 
When all of these minerals mix together in Lake Natron, along with some of the natural spring water being fed, along with its high mineral content, into the lake, it creates this alkalinity level which um, is just way too high for things to eat or consume. Um, for science nerds out there, this water has a pH level of like 9 to 10.5, which is huge. And to put that into, pers- uh, into perspective, basic um, pH levels for water like in the sea is like a 7 to a 9. So really wicked high levels of salt, but not necessarily deadly to people or animals. You know, fish and birds and shit swimming it, whatever. But... That weird salt level mixed with the shallow lake's um, temperature of around 140 degrees Fahrenheit creates a super weird mixture, and it makes Lake Natron the deadliest lake in the country. And it's kind of interesting because there's a weird crust that forms over the top of this water that gives it kind of a red or pink hue mixed with these microorganisms that grow there feeding off the nests of some birds make it this really kind of cool tie-dyed looking lake that's also um, orange on top of the red and pink. So all that boring shit's out of the way. Let's get into it. Mother Nature proves to be one unforgiving mistress because the lake... Even though it's this giant poisonous hot tub, it still remains <laughs> a breeding ground for the species of lesser flamingo who only likes to nest in this lake. And natural irony, um, this species is nearly threatened as far as like endangered species go um, directly as a consequence of the dependence on Lake Natron for breeding purposes. So during periods of, you know, lack of rain and a lot of evaporation and drought, the water levels in this lake go down severely and it leaves these kind of like salt islands where these birds can land and nest and eat, build their nest and try to breed. But animals that die in the lake are subsequently turned into these really strange like calcified statues and through this odd calcification process brought on by the sodium bicarbonate, it turns them into like these skeleton statues. And we've included some pictures um, for you guys to look at on the compendium, the, <laughs> the compendium, the uh, companion <laughs> over on Instagram. But it's super weird because, of course, the bodies do a little bit of this um, natural decomposition, but feathers and fur and bones stay where they're at. So it almost looks like the animals land there and just get preserved just like fucking Medusa was looking at them. And um, it's not only birds. There's also bats that this can happen to. Or is to. it like they have to be there for a while? Dude, I don't know. Because you look at it and the bat looks like it's got sunken in skin, kind of like a mummy. Um, this crow or crane that's landed on this tree branch it almost looks like it jumped in the water and then landed on the branch and then froze but i'm assuming they probably die pretty quick from maybe consuming the water or maybe if they just get too saturated i don't know man i you can do some more reading i didn't read too much into it because i didn't want to make this super humdrum <laughs> like fucking uh, ferris bueller bueller but Anyway, a lot of this came to light because this photographer named Nick Brandt, uh, he discovered the calcified statues when he was on this photography exhibition um, at the lake. And, of course, he stopped and did some really beautiful still frames, still shots of these animals. And it's just fucking insane. Um, And so please definitely, guys, look at the pictures here. We'll try to include those on Facebook, too, and Twitter. Um, 
it's pretty cool the way these things get preserved. But there's actually only supposedly one species of animal that can actually survive in the water. And that's going to be this rare species of fish that's evolved to survive and flourish in the poisonous water. That's the only thing that can survive like nuclear fallout. Um, you know, the things that are left over from the dinosaurs, fucking mm-hmm. fish. <laughs> yeah. The dumbest you know, fucking creatures eyes. on the earth and they can survive <laughs> anything. <laughs> Poison water? Let's go live there. That <laughs> <laughs> shit. Uh, did you hear that goldfish have an attention span of three seconds? I'd believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that one blinks. <laughs> right. Blink, blink. It's like the, the, the fish on The Simpsons yeah. with three eyes. But yeah, that's pretty intense, man. Um, I'd like to go there and see if there's just tons of these statues laying around. I bet by now people try to scalp them and take them home, but... God knows what kind of weird slug disease these things have in them. <laughs> but yeah, I found that to be really cool, and it directly coincided with another weird story that I fell into a couple months ago. And that's what the, you would call the phenomenon of bog bodies. Have you heard of bog bodies before? Nope. So it serendipitously is kind of a similar phenomenon. So a bog body... Um, were rumored to be like creatures or mud monsters that lived in the swamps that would attack people. And explorers would be, you know, kind of trudging through this muddy, nasty, murky, stanky water. And then they would go back to their villages and report seeing these creepy brown corpses reaching up out of the mud, trying to grab them and grabbing their horses' legs and trying to pull them down to the murky depths below. And as, you know, time has gone by, scientists have actually discovered these things and they're what people, they're what is called bog people or bog bodies. And essentially they're human cadavers that have died and been naturally mummified after being dumped into peat bogs. And what's really cool is that they're really widespread. It's not just a case of like that lake in Tanzania being the only place that does this. Bog bodies can be found pretty much anywhere you have peat bogs or different types of bogs and swamps. And one of the most famous bodies that a lot of people have heard of is the Tuland man from 4th century BCE. And I've included a picture of him there. Did you get the picture? On on what? What am I? Um, it's on our doc that I sent you. Well, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> well, what's really cool about these bog bodies is the majority of them have been found completely preserved. Oh shit! Almost isn't that fucking weird? It's yeah. almost like they were just dipped in wax and then just you know frozen. Yeah. The common factor of the majority of bog bodies is that they have been found in peat and are partially preserved. What's interesting is the actual levels of preservation vary widely, and uh, that's from perfectly preserved corpses to just skeletons and even skin sacks with no bones or actual internal organs intact. And that's that second picture that kind of looks like a dehydrated child. or Yeah, that got a, looks like a mummified baby. Ugh, grody. Um, unlike most ancient human remains, bog bodies oftentimes retain their skin and internal organs due to the unusual conditions of the surrounding area and geography of where they're discovered. So the contributing conditions include the water's acidity level, low to high temperatures, and the amount of oxygen present. All when combined lead to this weird level of preservation of the bodies 
um, including severely tanning their skin or eating away everything but the skeleton. But the factors have always had a give and take as far as the preservation levels. Some bog bodies may appear to have the skin well-preserved, like, you know, complete solid leather skin, but the bones generally are not intact due to the different levels of acid. So some of the acid levels will actually tan the skin and keep the skin intact, but leach into the body and actually eat away everything else, making like kind of a weird hardened skin sack or leather cocoon. You the said preservation skin sack. <laughs> <laughs> the preservation of the bog bodies in peat bogs is a natural phenomenon, and it's not a result of human mummification. So it's not like in Egypt, you know, you're putting them in a tomb and it's kind of a controlled environment. This is just naturally occurring. It's caused by unique physical and biochemical compositions of the bogs. Different types of bogs can affect the mummification process differently. Raised bogs best preserve the corpses, whereas fens and transitional bogs tend to preserve harder tissue, such as skeletons, rather than soft tissue. So, it's cool and all, I think, but how in the sweet mud mummy hell do bodies get into these bogs in the first place? Oh, you're going to tell me, aren't you? I'm going to tell you, buddy, because <laughs> we didn't get this far last time we tried to record this. <laughs> <laughs> the answer actually isn't as easy to come by as you might think, but in history, science nerds have some idea. So one way these bodies get into these bogs are ceremonial burials. People are simply dumped in the bogs to use the process as an actual dedication or sacrifice to the gods above. People knew that bodies would be preserved, thus using Mother Nature as a preservation station and stored a lot of their coveted societal members there, kind of like these weird, like, watery morgues. And here's a fun fact for you. If you were to go through there and you would, you know, find one of these uh, bog bodies and do some um, investigation, sorry, about choked again, you might find that some of these bodies, while they look intact, are actually Frankenstein together. Meaning you could have a body that's pretty much three quarters intact, but maybe missing like an arm or a leg that has been replaced by somebody else's bones. What? Yeah. And it's really fucking cool. I thought it was freaky when I read it, but it kind of makes sense. Um, I know a lot of people, especially like grandparents, um, have the old saying that when you bury me, you can take all my body's organs except for my eyes because I want to see heaven. Have you ever heard that uh, phrase? Nope. So that was a belief that a lot of people in modern days have and probably a long time ago too that if you are a donor, you can you know specifically choose what parts you want donated. And a lot of people have said you can take everything but my eyes and my tongue because I'd like to be able to see Jesus and speak to God or vice versa or what have you. So the idea is kind of the same here for bog bodies. If you were to bury your king or your queen or one of your noblemen – if they die, depending on your beliefs, they probably get to take to heaven what they're buried with. So you only get to go to heaven with the parts you got. So people thought, well, shit, we don't want him to hobble around like some kind of one-legged numb nut. Let's go ahead and give him, you know, yeah, the, the, I don't the village get to, idiot's leg. I don't want to get to heaven without my liver. <laughs> right. I need a drink. So. Yeah, they've gone through and, and found that, like, you know, somebody lost a finger from an accident or an arm or a leg from amputation. And so bones that don't match have actually been um, buried with them or attached to them or, you know, surgically stuck in there, however. 
And uh, sometimes they're bones that aren't even in the same century. There's been cases where bog bodies have been found with, you know, a leg bone that's a hundred years older than the actual bones of the body. So, yeah, kind of cool. Another idea how the bodies got there is just plain old shitty luck. Oh. They were going through the bog, slipped, tripped, fell, and fucking died. Oh. <laughs> right. Or cheap burial plots. Just dump them. Yeah. If we don't want to dig holes or the cemetery's getting full, let's just throw them in the bog because nobody's drinking that water. <laughs> <laughs> and what's kind of cool is more recently bog bodies have been discovered um, in Germany and Russia and areas of the Eastern Front from back in World War One. Um, Russian and German soldiers have been discovered in the Mazurian Lake District of the northeastern region of Poland, said to have been bodies of fallen soldiers from World War One. So, you know, in, in times of great uh, battles and great wars, we don't have time just to dig a hole and bury our dead. Sometimes we just uh, think, well, the best burial that we have is going to be this bog. And they've dumped the fallen soldiers into these bogs to preserve their bodies. So there you go. That is basically, in short, is what a bog body is. Wow. Oh, yeah. We're going to keep this short and to the point. <laughs> I don't want you falling asleep on me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I used to always hear stories of mud monsters and mud men, and I wanted to figure out what they were and stumbled upon the uh, the actual fact of bog bodies. So, real quick, um, I was watching a, a an ad on um, Facebook the other day for a new mm-hmm. burial process. So, Basically, they uh, freeze dry the body and then they like put it through like this shaker and it breaks like the particles into freeze dried dust. Mm-hmm. And then they, they heat that back up um, so that the water evaporates off of it. And then um, they do like a sifting process and then um, they put that in a biodegradable sack and then they bury that in the ground. And then mm-hmm. basically um, the the ashes or the freeze-dried particles act as fertilizers for the ground, and then that way trees, plants, and flowers can grow out of your dead body. Um, oh. Yeah. So I thought halfway through you were going to tell me that's how uh, astronaut ice cream was made. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Very similar process. <laughs> so you look great as people. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's pretty fucking cool. It'd make more sense because you wouldn't have to fucking bury a – Six by three foot by two foot coffin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Man, I still stand by my statement previously. Just cremate me and dump the parts in a coffee can and move about your day. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Bury me in the backyard. Mm, Coffee can, Sean. Yep, that's what they call me. Home Folgers. Well, dude, why don't you take it over? Because you said you had something that kind of related a little bit to the bog bodies and shit. Yeah. Um, So my first thoughts when we talked about doing this episode, you know, about like Mother Nature, Mm -hmm. um, I was going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and then like the Eye of Africa. But both of those would feel like a really boring history lesson. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, fuck, I need to come up with something else. And so I found this really great story about this mysterious disappearing volcano in florida but uh then as i was typing my notes today i was like you know what maybe i can talk about sodom and gomorrah real quick because there is you know like a couple interesting facts 
And uh, we had talked earlier on the phone and you said that, uh, you know, biblical history wise, you know, you weren't, you know, too up to date with the whole Sodom and Gomorrah story. Yeah, I've always heard of it, um, but never read it. Yeah, yeah. The Bible to me is kind of boring. And by kind of, I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, but go so on. Sodom and Gomorrah are like these twin twin cities. And, you know, like with the majority of the Bible, so people who are, you know, big big Bible people don't take this the wrong way. But right, academically, right. most people, you know, view the Bible as just fairy tales. Um, they're just stories that are fables that we were told to kind of pass along, you know, information like lessons. And so for the longest time, everybody thought Sodom and Gomorrah was just like a made up, you know, two made up twin cities. They didn't really exist. But then archaeologists claim that uh, they had found in the Dead Sea these this area that has um, calcified salt structures. So kind of like you were talking about in your, uh, you know, petrified lake, how like it creates like yeah. these calcified salt islands that the birdies can land on. Mm-hmm. So throughout this whole entire area, um, there's a bunch of these calcified salt structures, and some of them look like they may or may not be something that may or may not have been a sphinx to city street layouts, buildings, and shit like that. Now, the interesting thing about all these is that they're just, you know, filled, riddled with these holes. And if you go and dig out the holes, you'll find these tiny sulfur-like balls. And when you light those balls on fire, they burn a bright blue. And that might and that's where the song "Goodness Gracious Great Balls, balls of Fire", of fire. Came from. Yeah, and that <laughs> and that also might back up the claims because in the Bible it said that the cities were destroyed by fire and brimstone, and then the term sodomy um, is also derived from the town name because. Well, the people like butt fucking, and God said, "No dice, people," <laughs> no dice. <laughs> and burned it to the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, I just really wanted to throw that in there. So that's why we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. You just wanted to say butt stuff, yep, butt fucking on the show, didn't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting because there are times in modern history where we do find archaeological evidence to back up some of these stories in the Bible. And that was kind of mm-hmm. one of them. Like, what are these odd? What are these? You know, these sulfur-like balls, and uh, it, you know, it's very indicative of that area. Like, nowhere else in in the uh, you know on the earth do we find these sulfur balls that you know burn the brightest. You know, because the blue is the hottest part of the flame. And so oh, yeah. that, you know, that would, if something were to burn that hot, that would calcify it. And that could be why we have all these salt stru- structures. So, you know, it kind of adds to the mystery of, you know, what the hell was this fire and brimstone that uh, rained down? But, you know, enough biblical history. Let's throw down the tale of the disappearing volcano from Florida. Have you ever Ooh. heard of this? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah. You really took a big turn there. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take a big turn. So 25 miles southeast of Tallahassee, um, there is a secret buried in the vast Wakasa Swamp that's one of Florida's great pioneer legends. So for two centuries, there's been these tales about the Wakasa smoke. And so people would talk about how they could see this uh, this orange glow all night long. They would see like these smoke you know, clouds 
like yeah. just billowing up through the swamp um, for for decades. And uh, the first accounts uh, are told from the Seminoan Indian lore. Mm-hmm. And then um, we can find accounts as early as 1830. So the the settlers from the area basically just blamed it on Indian campfires or a pirate's den. So that's basically how they explained it because, you know, they were always afraid of, I guess, pirates and, you know, Indian attacks. They're like, that, that goddamn light out in the... And uh, the swamp, that's the Indians and that's the pirates are, are working together to get us. <laughs> and it says that the smoke varied from thick black coal-like smoke to a bluish white, which would be wood smoke. And it usually swirled upward in a chimney-like manner. Uh-huh. And uh, the smoke was visible as far out as the Gulf of Mexico. So there's even reports as, you know, the Spanish conquistadors that were coming in. Um, they reported seeing this weird, you know, smoky background. They're like, oh, my God, what the fuck is that? Um, after a while, um, uh, seafarers and local people uh, claimed that it was the old man of the swamp smoking his pipe. And then the superstitious. Preston. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the superstitious folk claimed it was the devil stirring his tar kiln. Because I guess the devil makes tar. I don't know why the devil would make tar, but I guess he does. Yeah. Yeah. So each generation always came up with a a new tale to explain, um, you know, where the smoke and where the fire was coming from. Now, um, the Wakasa Swamp is untouched by wilderness, and it's dotted with numerous sulfur springs. And it, it's one of those areas where it's really hard to explore because it's riddled with bogs, um, kind of like, you know, your bog body story. And uh, it, it's such a remote area and it's so inaccessible that it's probably explains why we've never been able to locate exactly the origins of the smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, around 1840, residents were climbing up on the rooftops to see if they could figure out what it was. And they decided that um, because, you know, we're getting around Civil War time, that uh, the smoke was clearly evidence of runaway slaves. It was them out in the swamp uh, with their campfires. God, everything takes a racist turn. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Damn. Um, then in 1880, in the Tallahassee Patriot, um, there is a news article stating that, uh, people reported large fires shooting its flaming tongue up into the night sky in 1865 was the first time that scientists finally gave it a new spin and said that the vapor, the fire, the smoke could all be indicative of an active volcano. 1886 was the last time people reported seeing the smoke and fire as mm-hmm. earthquakes uh, from all the way up in North Carolina um, had uh, down in Tallahassee. They felt the after effects. And so they basically had these ground trimmers. And then shortly after the ground trimmers, the smoke and the fire evaporated like nobody saw it anymore. So everybody was like, well, shit, did the vault or did the earthquake plug up the volcano? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So 1935, um, William Wyatt uh, claimed to find scattered rocks that looked like they had been burnt by extreme heat in the area. Mm-hmm. In 1940, an oil company drill uh, that was doing a drilling test near Wakala uh, brought up volcanic material that came uh, from 7,000 feet below the surface. 
the fuck? Yeah. In 1949, when the Highway 98 was being built, workers came upon a deep hole in the middle of the Wakasa Swamp that required 34 dump trucks hauling 600 tons of rock to fill the motherfucker up, uh, the, uh, to fill it up. Because that was your <laughs> volcano crater right there. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, prior to 1960, um, geolo- geological surveys were made, um, and they had several expeditions into the swamp. And they said that they discovered scattered piles of boulders that looked like they'd been thrown out of the earth. Uh, but they also couldn't state whether or not that they were from volcanic origin. They were just like, look like something exploded <laughs> in the fucking swamp. Um, and that goes all the way up to 1997. Same thing. A team goes in trying to, you know, re- research this legendary volcano. And uh, they really couldn't find anything else. They, One of the guys stated, you know, we hiked about two miles from the river to a high ridge that ran through a hammock. Uh, there was a high point of the ridge where rocks were strewn mm-hmm. everywhere. But the rocks were just limestone and flint. Nothing volcanic in nature. The only thing that modern day science uh, can speculate on what this all comes from is the fact that the bogs down there are so thick and that that moss builds up like the peat moss or whatever builds up that uh, eventually it'll catch fire. And because there's so much material there that has built up over the years that it'll just burn and burn and burn and burn. Basically until it's gone. So they said there is no, you know, old man smoking a pipe. There's no slaves and Indians and pirates out there. There's no fucking volcano, even though people found a giant crater that took 600 tons of rock to fill it the fuck up. But it's all simply burning peat moss. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> people even well, thought at one point in time that maybe some old hillbilly was out in the swamps making moonshine and his distillery exploded. And, like, that's what started the fire. Oh, yeah. But you know what? <laughs> like, like, like a hillbilly meth yeah. lab exploded. <laughs> Somewhere out among the gators and the snakes lie the answers to Florida's lost volcano mystery. And I'm still going to go with it's a fucking volcano. I'm going to say it was the two-legged stump jumper. You think so? Maybe he was the or one the two, that was... The two-egg stump yeah, jumper. the two-egg stump jumper. He was actually out there in his own... He had his own distillery, so Bigfoot's making whiskey and meth out in the swamp, and he had an explosion, and that's why there's rocks all over the fucking place. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, dude, that, that story reminds me of that fucking old uh, doorway to hell hole in Turkmenistan. Did you ever hear about that shit? No. This is this is not part of the show notes, but yeah, there was a there was a hole somewhere um, in like Derwerzi or something like that, Turkmenistan, and it was a hole that people were calling the doorway to hell or the gateway to hell, and it was something to do with like geographers or uh, sorry, geologists were out drilling at this drill site back in like 1971, and as they were drilling. Um, they drilled a fucking hole and it hit a cavern filled with natural gas. And because they basically broke the seal and let the gas pressure out, um, part of this stone shelf collapsed and made this giant hole that was like 70 meters across. Oh. And they're just like, oh, holy shit, 
there is a ton of gas in this cavern and we're not going to be able to go down there because how poisonous it is, you know, poisonous it is. We're going to die. So they said, well, there surely enough can't be that much natural gas down there. So they lit the gas on fire thinking they could just burn it off. (laughs) (laughs) And all it did is make this giant flaming hole that continued to burn for like years and years and years. I can't remember if it's still burning now, but I know as of back in like 2012, like 41 years later, this fucking giant crater is still on fire. So maybe that's also what happened in Florida. Um, well, that the the you know the movie Silent Hill, um, that that town, um, where you know basically it was, yeah, yeah that's actually the there's a town shit. in real life that that actually happened to. Um, that there was a coal vein running underneath the town and they dug too far and it basically just fucked up uh-huh. the town and still to this day, like the town is on fire. So, Oh yeah. yeah I heard about that. I heard about that. I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if the hole is still burning in, um, Turkmenistan, but I know as of like 2012, the shit was still on fire. Yeah. God, I mean, I can't imagine that shit. You know, this has been a lot of science for this episode. Too much science. (laughs) And (laughs) too much science. Damn it. But if you're still here, guys, we're going to reward you with a little spooky shit. Because this podcast is not based surely upon scientific proof, folks, or facts. Even though we're both scientists. Yeah. Yeah, we're both scientists. Um, But I'm going to tell you a spooky story. A true spooky story, guys, because that's what everybody came here for. So, Preston, i got to ask you first. What would you do one day if you're out plowing your fields, minding your own damn business, and you look up from your tiller and you're met face-to-face, eye-to-eye, with two small, green, childlike humanoids? What Probably would you do? fucking throw a rock at them or <laughs> run them over with my plow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. True Preston response. <laughs> well, that's not what happened in the tale I'm about to tell you. But have you ever heard the tale of the children of Vulpit? Nope. Awesome. I am glad. So I got to give a shout out to my buddy Tony, a longtime dear friend of mine, one of my bestest buddies and listener of the show. Tony told me the story of the children of Vulpit or Woolpit, depending how you want to pronounce it, um, a long ass time ago, back in like high school, 2002, 2003. And I've been looking for a time to talk about it. And it kind of fits in with bogs because, well, you'll you'll understand why in a minute. But anyway, I want to tell you the story, and it's a great time to finish off the show with some spooky tales. So we're going to jump into our time machine, folks, and we're going to travel back to Britain, roughly 1135 to 1153 A.D. You know, the good old smelly old stinky disease-ridden Middle Ages. And this is the time back around the reign of King Stephen or King Henry II, depending what kind of era you want to say this took place in. So the story takes place in a little village called Vulpit or Woolpit. And this is just a little ways off from the Bury St. Edmunds, which apparently is a prominent town in Britain. I have no idea. Um, The little town of Woolpit or Woolpit got its name because of the proximity it shared with the wolf pits. 
big old pits that were dug in the hole way back from yesteryear that were used to catch, trap, and or kill giant predatory beasts like wolves and bears and other shit that prowled and preyed on many of the defenseless dopes of the Middle Ages. So one day in the village of Woolpit, the locals were out tending their fields and they're pulling their weeds and they're harvesting their crops, they're tilling their fields, and they're doing the normal boring-ass shit you would do back then. And suddenly, the group of people out working were approached by two strange beings. They were two small children, very young, probably five to six years old. But what was very peculiar about these little creatures where they were clothed in strange cloth, almost like their clothing was made out of leaves and grass and different pieces of, like, sinewy weeds. No, hobos. (laughs) Right. Simple folk. But what was even stranger more so about these little children was they had vibrant green skin, light-colored hair, blondish-green hair, and green eyes. They didn't speak any English that was known of that time, but instead they babbled in a weird unknown language that the locals of Woolpit had never heard before. So the villagers were just as shocked and perplexed as his two little kids were. They had no idea what the hell was going on. So not knowing exactly what to do with these creepy little spawn of the jolly green giant, they gathered them up and hauled their screaming asses into their village because they're trying to figure out who the fuck would know what to do with these things. And so they seeked out the advice from one of the town's noblemen, who they were sure would have a better education than them. I put better education than these vegetable-picking goobers, <laughs> hoping they would he would know what to do. So enter Sir Richard DeCane, the local knight living in their village. So knights were noblemen. They knew a lot of things about a lot of things. They were probably schooled a little bit. So they just knew Sir Richard would knew what to do. So not surprisingly, though, Sir Richard was initially just as confused and bewildered as the villagers were at the sight of these weird-ass Cabbage Patch kids, (laughs) who, by the way, were now crying hysterically. And they said, Go to hell! (laughs) So Sir Richard had no idea why they were crying. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they are just fucking hungry. So he began to have the locals bring in all kinds of food just to try to console the kids and calm them down so they would shut the hell up. Here, vegetable people, (laughs) eat vegetables. Right. (laughs) So the locals brought in cakes and sweets and meats and pie and everything else, but the kids would only nibble a little bit and then spit the food back out on the table in disgust and cry harder. So Sir Richard got pissed off in an an act of sheer what-the-fuckedness. He threw a handful of bean pods at the kid at the kids and thought, if you're not going to eat any of that, then you can just chew on these, you little green bean looking bastards. So everybody got surprised because because the little heathens grabbed up the bean pods and began chowing down like they were Garfield face down in a pound of lasagna. Cannibals, they're eating their own. (laughs) Right, that's what I thought. (laughs) Then the days turn into weeks. And the little kids start to get happier and act right. And the little girl even branched out a little bit and began eating other foods as well. But our tale takes a turn for the worst. 
because the little boy is just too damn stubborn to eat anything else besides bean pods and eventually dies, most likely because of malnourishment. Now the years pass and the little girl eventually turns into a young woman. She starts to lose her green hue, gets the normal skin color that the folks of that time had, and she learns to speak the local tongue, you know, the English of that day, and she even gets a job. And so she's working with the general public and she's doing things that other humans do, but she gets a reputation for being a little randy because she starts to get a taste for the sinful fruits as well from what happens when everybody gets raging hormones, they do what they do, and she's kind of known as a little promiscuous, you know, floozy. So time goes by a little bit more, she settles down, and eventually she marries a man from King's Lynn in southern Norfolk. And as time goes by and the tale kind of winds down to an end, eventually she's asked just exactly where she and her brother had came from and what happened. So she says, she and her brother have come from a land or came from a land known as St. Martin's, a place that had no sun or sunlight, but only casted a low light similar to the light casted after sunsets. She recounted that she and her brother one day were following their flock of livestock and they stumbled onto a strange cavern. So as young kids do, they go into the cavern and they start to explore. After entering the cave, they of course get lost because they're just fucking dipshit kids and they have no idea where the hell to go. So they begin to panic and then they start to hear the sweet soothing sound of bells ringing. And so they spend a little time wandering through the cave, chasing the sounds of the bells, until they finally come to what they thought was the cave's exit. But when they came out of the cave, they were stunned by the excessive light of our Earth sun, dazed by the unusual temperature of the air, and thus had to lay down for a while immediately, and then got up later to do some more exploring. After they got their bearings and they got up, they started walking around, and then they were met with the faces of pale-skinned adult humans of which they had never seen before. So being completely confused and stunned at the sight of these big people with pale skin, they freaked out, the humans freaked out, and they were thus caught. And so um, that's kind of the end of the story. They never got a chance to go back to St. Martin's. And the woman later was said to be known as Agnes Barre or Barry and lived the rest of her normal human life. And thus her story got lost in history. And that is the tale of the children of Woolpit. Hmm. You know what? I've actually have heard that story. Have you? Yeah, but it, it wasn't, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't hear it as the Woolpit and the, it, I like read when I read the story it took place in like the 1700s. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Fucking well, nerd. <laughs> see if you can find it, and that'll be a good place for us to stop for today because this kind of gets into that uh, that muddy water of you know elves and gnomes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we'll put a pin in it. I had I had one more story to tell you, but I think I'll save it for next time. Because it kind of links in with the idea, again, of fairies and, and gnomes and shit like that. And why don't we pick up episode 74, jump back into cryptid encounters, and start talking about the wee folk. 
Yeah, the wee people. I got a couple good wee people stories. Uh, Hell yeah. Fairies, leprechauns, gnomes, all that kind of shit. So yeah, we'll call it right now. Nep- uh, next episode, the wee folk. <laughs> <laughs> I almost said the next episode. Hell yeah, dude. Cool, yeah. See if you can find that uh, that alternate version of that story if you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I kind of thought it was the story I remember Tony telling me. Uh, I thought it was a little more modern than that as well. But again, that could be one of the stories that just travels, you know, from you know generation to generation. Generation. So yep. And I mean the the story of Woolpit. It actually it was documented by you know scholars and shit back in the twelve hundred uh, the twelve hundreds the year twelve hundred. Uh, so there might be some truth to it after all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who knows? Or just a really great fairy tale. So cool, man. Well, you got anything you want to plug? Yeah. Need a beer, want a beard, want to grow a bog body beard? <laughs> Use Big Dobbs Beard Bombs products. And if you do, you might hear something like, Hey, baby, you looking <laughs> So if you want to look hot tonight, Sean's going to hit you with the promo code and tell you how to get 20% off all your beard care needs. Are you sure there's not a soundbite somewhere of me rattling off the promo code that you've got your finger on, your itchy little finger on? Use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your entire order. And also, uh, congratulations to Eric. Um, he won the giveaway. We had a drawing for our uh, Pixelated for a Purpose fundraiser, and Eric was our lucky winner of a yeah. really sweet beard care package from Big Dobbs. So congrats, Yeah, thanks, man. Dobbs. We appreciate yeah. that. And congrats to Matt, uh, another listener named Matt, who had made some donations for us as well. Matt won the uh, Raspberry Pi or Raspy Boy a handheld device that he can actually put a Rasby boy into and, and play old school Nintendo and Super Nintendo games in. So that's pretty cool too. Two big winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Shout out corner continues. I need to give a shout out to a brand new listener, Zach. Uh, Zach is from Wichita and recently moved away and then uh, just hit me up that he found our show and uh, we appreciate your support and your uh, following us, Zach. So big shout out to you, sir. And, um, uh, the hits keep coming because another shout out to Mark, our man behind the scenes. Uh, check out Mark's solo show, Pixelated Sausage, where he goes over lots of really cool uh, stuff he's into, video games, movies, TV shows. And then uh, Rich, of course, Preston, we got to mention Rich's uh, show, my favorite race car podcast. Sports Cars Unleashed. There you go. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. Um, we will be back again next week, back with our regular antics. Stephen will be in the car with us, and we'll talk about the wee folk, fairies, and the like. Ooh. Hell yeah. All right, guys, thanks so much for bearing through science class, and we will catch you next time around. Peace. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707 523 4263. 
Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.